I'm Tanya Kerson, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. This month's featured book dives into questions that have become increasingly central in Real Food Media's analysis and for the U.S. food movement. Who controls land and resources? How are people, especially people of color, dispossessed from their lands, and what are the health and environmental consequences of that dispossession? How can we decolonize our diets and our movements for food system transformation? My guest today has been thinking about these questions for many years. Her new book, As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock, looks at recent struggles over native lands and sacred sites as part of a long history of environmental injustice under settler colonialism. Dina Gillio Whitaker, a descendant of Colville Confederated Tribes, is a lecturer of American Indian Studies at California State University, San Marcos, and a consultant and educator in environmental justice policy planning. She's also an award-winning journalist and co-author with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz of the book All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans. Hi, Dina. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Tanya. Good to be with you. So the book centers on this concept of environmental justice and efforts by scholars and activists to indigenize environmental justice. So I want to start there. Can you talk about how this phrase entered our popular and legal vernacular and some of the ways environmental justice, at least at, at first, was fairly narrowly drawn and maybe not really adequate for addressing the needs of Native peoples? The term environmental justice, it can mean a lot of different things. The concept doesn't even really become a thing until the early 1980s, and it's born out of Black communities in the Deep South who were experiencing what they felt to be or what they suspected to be deliberate targeting of their communities for toxic waste dumps. Mm. And it led to a series of community-based studies and then government-sponsored studies seeking to understand if there really was such a thing as what they were calling environmental racism. Mm. And the studies showed that um, indeed there was, that communities can be targeted for these kinds of toxic development um, because of their race and culture. And so it led to action on the governmental level and the legal level. This concept of indigenizing environmental justice, what it does is it acknowledges that the way we understand environmental justice is far too narrow to fit for Native Americans because of this concept of environmental racism. This is the foundation of what environmental justice means. It's about um, the fair and equal distribution of environmental risks and harms Mm -hmm. that disproportionately expose communities of color. But it depends on understanding all communities as equal as ethnic minority communities. And this just does not fit for American Indian people and communities 
because American Indians are not ethnic minorities, American Indians are nations with territories and sovereignty and jurisdiction and entirely different histories that go back millennia on the land and histories of colonization, which is not true for any other population of people on this continent. The book opens with the story of Standing Rock as an illustration of the the ongoing environmental disruption and environmental injustice faced by Native people, as well as the critical role of alliances in, in defending Native lands and sacred places. So why do you start with, with Standing Rock, and, and what does that illustrate about Indigenous environmental justice? My book with Roxanne, All the Real Indians Died Off, and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans, had just come out uh, in October of 2016, mm-hmm. and the Standing Rock conflict was really escalating. So it was really, you know, it was in the minds of people, you know, especially for people who were paying attention. And so my editor had posed the question, what does environmental justice look like through the lens of settler colonialism? And I said, well, gee, it's funny that you should ask. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I have a long history of writing about that. And so it just came out of out of that particular time. And there is no better or more immediate example to use as sort of the foundation for talking about what environmental injustice looks like for Indian country, um, because it was playing out right in front of our very eyes. And all the gaps that exist in our discourse about environmental justice were all there. So it was, there just couldn't have been a more perfect example. We don't need to recount every detail of the Standing Rock saga, which, you know, you outline so richly in the first chapter of the book, and that, of course, is is ongoing. But um, one of the things that I found so insightful was your discussion around um, alliances and alliances between the Native people who, um, you know, really created the culture um, of the the protest movement at Standing Rock and the non-Native people who ended up coming in solidarity. And on the one hand, how critical that was and historic in some ways, but also some of the tensions that emerged, you know, within the movement. Can you speak a little bit to that? I, I just found that so, um, so helpful and, and fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it was such an interesting moment. You know, I went to Standing Rock. I wasn't there, like, for the entire duration like some people were. I was just there really for a couple of days. And it was that Thanksgiving weekend when the population was at its peak. Prior to that point, it had been mostly Native people there. But, you know, after September, when the human rights abuses really start to happen Mm -hmm. with the dog attacks on Labor Day, that's when people really started pouring in. And at some point that the population balance began to shift. When non-Native people came, what they came into was a space that was dominated by Native culture, Mm. specifically Lakota. Lakota protocol Um, Lakota worldview, everything was determined 
you know, by Lakota people, which was a very different orientation for people, unless you had actually been in Lakota's ceremonial space or been to the reservations or something, it would have been really foreign to you. And so for the vast majority of non-Native people who were there, it was foreign to them. Mm. And I think it threw people off, as I documented in the book, you know, there were rumblings of people being there and treating it like it was a music festival and like it was a fun thing. Like people talked about going there because they felt called to be there. People sort of made it about their own individual, personal, spiritual journey. Mm. Um, When that's not the focus of what was happening, right? This was a serious protest gathering, um, a resistance event where people were defending with their lives, the water and the land. And yet these other narratives were sort of playing out in this almost new agey kind of way, which is really, um, you know, has been very common with the advent of the new age movement and the counterculture when youth were kind of causing all this cultural shift and change in the society and they were looking to native people to imagine a different kind of society and there was a lot of cultural appropriation that went on around that it wasn't that it was not well intended by these people but that what happened was that they brought with them their world views that were steeped in pretty much white supremacy, white privilege, and demanded their right to practice the religion and spirituality of other people. And and this has been a problem ever since. And um, as I wrote about it in the book, that's that's how I see it. I see that um, a lot of the conflicts that were playing out were kind of rooted in this unseen, unacknowledged uh, white privilege. I think that's it's so interesting how you talk about these different narratives, and you know, at certain moments um, in the book, in some of the struggles and stories that you recount, these narratives seem to um, sort of support one another in you know strategically you know useful ways, such as native movement to protect certain sacred sites and the environmental movements interest to you know conserve certain ecosystems but the problem seems to happen when you know non-native even you know liberal progressive environmentalist movements come with all of this unexamined baggage around the settler colonialist framework in which it operates Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of a bitter pill to swallow for, you know, progressive liberal lefties who like to think of themselves as politically enlightened. (laughs) And in some ways, this is really the next frontier. I mean, we can have this conversation. Uh, This is kind of for better or for worse since the Trump election and all this in our face white supremacy and racism that's just so on the surface, it's given us an opportunity to have a really honest conversation about Mm -hmm. it, you know, to acknowledge that, you know, we don't live in the post-racial state. The scales are not 
balanced yet, you know, just because we had a black president. But for Native people, it's not just about racial privilege, right? And this is some of the work that I'm going deeper into is understanding what white privilege is beyond the concept of race. We have to be able to talk about these systems of oppression beyond race because for Native people, it's, um, it's way beyond race which is why environmental justice and the narrative, the discourse of environmental racism is so inadequate. Right. So um, when you say, you know, that environmental justice needs to go beyond um, environmental racism, what you're explicitly referring to are some of the different worldview and relationship to place and different, I think, conceptions of the sacred is something that really struck me as a main thread throughout your book, which is is something that can't really adequately be contained maybe within a kind of a a racial justice or a racial equity type of frame. Yeah, exactly. Especially in a legal system that systematically denies indigenous worldviews of the sacred that Mm -hmm. doesn't have the ability to acknowledge that. And that's the reality of the legal system in this country you know, going back to the 1980s with a decision called the Ling decision that basically denied the ability to protect a native sacred site in effect because it didn't acknowledge native religions as legitimate in the same way that Western-based like Christian religion, for example, is recognized. I was very surprised to read about the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, which was not passed until 1978, allowing Native peoples, if I have this right, to freely practice their religion, spiritual practices, and ceremonial practices. Um, but that this act didn't you know, actually guarantee the environmental integrity of sacred sites or, or the conditions necessary for religious practices in those spaces. Exactly. And most people don't realize that Native Americans are the only people who did not have religious freedom in this country. Mm. Um, Our religions were outright banned, outlawed, beginning around 1883. And, you know, it didn't change for decades after that. And the American Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978 really was the marking point for officially overturning that. But yes, it it sounds good on the surface, but it's, you know, one of those kind of toothless laws. And as you Mm -hmm. just said, it might protect access to certain sites, especially in public lands, but it doesn't protect the, um, as you just, you know, said it so well, the, the integrity of those places. So um, that's why we see, you know, conflicts like, you know, the San Francisco Peaks, where they have fought for years and years to stop the, you know, what Native people see as the desecration of this place mm-hmm. by the spraying of basically treated sewage water on these public lands. Um, that have not only health risks associated with them, but also is seen as really a desecration of these sacred places by Native people. Um, So there's absolutely no kind of legal structure to protect from that. 
And um, these are the kinds of battles that we're fighting all over the place. Since this is Real Food Reads, I wanted to turn our attention more explicitly to food. You know, this conversation about access to to sacred places is also linked and probably inseparable to access to lands and, and territories and food producing and <laughs> life-giving resources. And, um, you know, as a food sovereignty activist, I, I love the chapter in your book about food sovereignty and health, which also looks at access to traditional plant medicines. You know, I think conversations in the U.S. food justice movement um, that in the 1990s were more focused on urban food security and, and food access have really expanded in recent years. I'm sure that's due um, to contributions from Native scholars and activists, but in into much richer understanding of the root causes of hunger. So now I think you're hearing a lot more about access to land and, and reparations and the need to decolonize our diets and decolonize food systems. But can you ground us a little bit in the history of how food has been used as a weapon against Native people by the settler colonialist state and you know how settler colonialism has cut off Native peoples from their food sources and just that legacy of violence that's still experienced today. We are talking about settler colonialism as a system that is intent on eliminating indigenous existence, right? Mm -hmm. And replacing Native people with a different population. And that's how we as scholars write about it. Uh, we can look at all the different ways that this happens. And the way that I write about environmental injustice for Indian country is that settler colonialism itself is the structure of environmental injustice. Mm -hmm. And um, it's in the process of separating people from their lands, which has happened in all these different ways. So it's about removal, removing Indians from their lands, placing mm -hmm. them on reservations where they were expected to grow crops that in lands that weren't even capable of doing that. Um, so that's one way. And it goes, you know, even deeper than that with settler colonialism as this violent process, you know, the violence of dispossession through war with the the targeting of people's food crops. I mean, this was something that happened a lot. It was a technology of war, um, you know, this sort of scorched earth policy in order to starve people into submission. So you know, attacking their food sources, plant-based foods, um, to the decimation of the buffalo with the plains people. Um, it happens in other ways with the building of dams, you know, in the 20th century. So even, you know, well after the Indian Wars period is over, when the settler government is building its infrastructure, you know, for the country and harnessing hydropower for irrigation of farms and for hydroelectricity generation. Well, all the dams that had to be built for all of that had devastating um, effects in Native communities mm -hmm. that ranged from um, the blockage of salmon passage, you know, in places like on the Columbia River that has led to the near extinction of salmon. Like I come from a salmon people. Uh, in other places, like on the Missouri River, as Nick Estes has written about it, 
um, the Pick Sloan dams, and there were only five dams in, in this area on the Missouri River, and this is a huge, huge watershed. Um, it flooded so much land that it became the most destructive to native life of all the histories of dams and um, robbed people of food sources, of timber resources, of access to medicines, all of these kinds of things. These are hugely devastating um, actions that continue to play out. So in this way, they continue this ongoing genocidal process because let's be clear, that's what it is. This is um, settler colonialism is a structure of genocide that continually plays itself out. And these are the kinds of things that Native people are still fighting all over the place. Um, and with the example of Standing Rock, it's so paradoxical because they were fighting to protect water, right, from the lake. But the lake itself was a huge offender and, and robbed them of so much. Right. So, you but know, this the, was through the, are, the construction of a, of a dam, right? Right. Yes. Yeah, I think yep. um, this is one of the things, too, an, an interesting, a really important way that you question or, or interrogate narratives in your book is by pointing out that some of these, maybe we would call unambiguous um, sort of goods or, you know, of, of progress and, and modernity, like, you know, people might not think of, of dams and roads and railways as actually the tools for advancing genocide and, and what you call ecocide, but that, you know, they in fact were genocidal tools. And not only that, um, they also serve to advance a model of extractive development that really put us on the path to the climate crisis that, you know, we're dealing with today. Absolutely. While modern America was building its infrastructure that by and large benefited white settler populations, it was destroying indigenous populations mm -hmm. and laying the foundation, as you just said, to um, this climate crisis that we're finding ourselves in the middle of. So ultimately, you know, the genocidal impact that it had on our populations is now impacting everybody. This is why we all have to and kind of band together and build these alliances because all of our futures are at risk now. So, you know, going back to the idea of um, food sovereignty and this food movement in this country, there's a lot to learn from Native people and their projects to reclaim their foods. Food for Native people, you know, this food sovereignty movement is a way of reclaiming not just culture, but health and life, because mm. the way this genocidal system has uh, affected Native people has played out in people's physical bodies. When you cut people off from their traditional sources of food and subject them to conditions of starvation, number one, that's, you know, the, the, the threat to life is obvious, but when you replace those traditional foods and those traditional foods were known for their high nutritional value. Right. Um, Native people are known to be some of the most healthy people in the world and certainly healthier than Europeans. 
we didn't have nutritional related diseases like Europeans had until our diets, you know, our food sources were taken away and we had imposed on us these European diets. So we went from being people of robust health to uh, being people who were being starved to death, you know, and especially in the early reservation periods. Mm. And then when we start having these Western foods brought into our communities in order to stave off the starvation, um, we go from being starving people to within a generation being obese, right. which is one of those stunning things that I found in my research that, that that was the case. And it happens really in the decade of the 1960s. And so now we have this situation where Native people are commonly afflicted with diet-related illnesses like heart disease and high blood pressure and cancer and diabetes and diet-related illnesses that affect not just us, but increasingly all of modern America. Right. I think a lot of people probably haven't even heard of, you know, the commodities program. And maybe you can just describe a little bit what that is. The commodities program was sort of the mid 20th century's version of the food ration program from, you know, half a century earlier, you know, going back to the the early reservation days when we were being rounded up and confined to reservations, um, which meant that we could no longer really feasibly practice our hunting, but there were still quite a few who were hunters and gathering their food in the wild and fishing people. Um, when that became no longer tenable, the federal government brought in food rations during that time, and that was part of the treaty agreements. And they bring in white flour, and they brought in lard, and um, all of these kinds of foods that Native people were not used to with very low nutritional value. Mm -hmm. So this is what begins this period of starvation, because these food rations often didn't even get there. So this led to these conditions of starvation. Then, you know, fast forward to the 1960s and the war on poverty, there were some studies, you know, about health on reservation communities. And, you know, they discovered that even in the 1960s, Native people were still, you know, malnourished. And mm -hmm. so they had this program called the Commodity Program, and it was just another version of the earlier food rations where they brought in foodstuffs that were you know, highly processed, things like macaroni, canned meats, cereals, things like that. And so they'd bring them into the reservations, and you could go get your commodities like once a week. Mm -hmm. And within a generation of this food commodity program, Native people go from being malnourished to being obese mm -hmm. and unhealthy in a different way. And so um, this is what we're trying to deal with now. Does a particular example come to mind of a way in which food sovereignty is being used to upend that, you know, model of food dependence and 
dependence on healthy, um, low nutritional value foods and sort of return and revitalize um, native foodways. I worked on the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project, which is often held up as sort of a model um, project. Mm-hmm. Um, the Muckleshoots are in Washington State in an area where um, prior to colonization, um, this area was so rich in natural resources that, you know, the people there didn't need to be agricultural people. They didn't need to do farming because their natural environment provided them with so many different kinds of food sources Mm. and ocean resources that they had this amazingly diverse diet, but their reservation now is very small the way that the environment's been compromised in all these different ways means that they can't really practice their food practices the way that they used to. And so, you know, they've come up with different kinds of programs to um, reinstill their traditional medicines and a food bank, you know, in areas when you can do hunting, you know, they'll teach the youth how to hunt Mm. Um, have venison and, you know, fishing, you know, sort of bring back those practices. So mm-hmm. it's re-indigenizing their system is really what it amounts to. So how do you re-indigenize your system in the context of a very colonized society? So right. these are these are very big challenges, but there's lots of innovation, the way that people are coming up with, with new kinds of ways to do this. You know, you mentioned working with youth. I would imagine that that would be one of the really critical components of um, re-indigenizing food systems. Yeah, it's a huge piece of it. I mean, I I don't know of any food sovereignty project that doesn't have some way of incorporating um, youth into it. I know when I was working with the Muckleshoots, we had an entire youth council Mm. that we worked with that, um, you know, was all about empowering them and investing them. But also, you know, looking at the last one I was working with them, we were looking at how to incorporate um, an economic system into that and doing an assessment that looked at how spending money outside the reservation community in grocery stores, for example, or places where they buy food, how that's really a drain on a tribal Mm -hmm. economic system. Um, because that money is not circulating within the tribal community. And when we did that assessment, we discovered that it was something like $3 million a year was leaving the reservation and not coming back. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there have been a number of, of localized, you know, research projects showing how opportunities for local businesses can create not only local employment, but that, you know, keeping that local food dollar in the community. In ways that, you know, bringing in a Walmart to a quote-unquote food desert doesn't do. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's part of that extractive kind of uh, economy. So when we talk about extractive societies, it extracts in all different kinds of ways. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of the extractive economy, you mention in your book some of the Um, regulations that were being rolled back under the Trump administration, you know, regulating extractive industry and air and water pollution and drilling and infrastructure and lots more. Um, And I think you mentioned there there were 67 
rules being rolled back at the time your book was published and you know I looked up the the, the most recent figure in the New York Times and it's it's now 85 that's so disturbing <laughs> yeah and it is disturbing and it, and this is bad news you know obviously for everyone not just for native peoples but you know can you offer some perspective on this from the you know the long history of indigenous resistance I want to be sanguine. I want to be hopeful. I want to be optimistic. But what I can say is that for Native people, we are people who are surviving genocide. To be Native today is to have survived a 95% genocide. Maybe that's something to take heart in. I, I mean, I don't know how else to think about it. Sure. Um, somehow we managed to survive. We are all at risk now. And I think that the reason that we survived was because of our unending resistance. Mm -hmm. um, we just kept going, we just kept going. And so here we are now we are at the point that we are leading the resistance movement, you know, the environmental resistance movement, the climate justice movement. Native people are at the forefront of it. And maybe that's not ironic. Maybe it's because of the fact that we have survived this total devastation. You know, I, I don't think I would quite call it a, a silver lining, <laughs> but maybe um, if there is one positive outgrowth of of the last couple of years has been a greater willingness. I don't know if, if that's what you've found to understand how real and ever-present racism is in our in our political and legal structures and, and also in our movements, unfortunately, and that understanding that history and those structures is really incumbent on all of us in order to build the movements that we need. Yeah, I mean, we have to be brave enough to understand how settler colonialism built a system that benefited a whole lot of people at the expense of a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so how do we get our heads around that? How do we decolonize that? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? You know, what, who has to give up what? You know, who has the privilege and what is it going to take to build a system that affirms life for everyone that's not built on the death of other people and mm. the death of environments mm. and other species. This is what's being asked of us. And it means we all have to look at whatever privilege we have and who, who sacrificed for that. Mm. This is about how anybody who's not indigenous to this land benefited from indigenous death mm. and and exploited labor right the system that people were forced into developing land i.e slavery on stolen lands like we we have to grapple with this stuff and be able to talk about what decolonization means so it's not just racial justice but what does racial justice also mean in the context of decolonizing a settler colonial system. These are obviously huge structural paradigmatic issues, and they implicate capitalism, they implicate all kinds of uh, structures built on these privileges that we're not going to survive, none of us are going to survive if we don't confront it. 
you know, Europeans brought with them a worldview that was built on the domination of the natural world. We find ourselves as a result in the middle of this uh, sixth mass extinction event. Mm. And so how do we shift that? You know, and this is where indigenous knowledge is so important. Like, you know, native people understand the world in a whole different way. We understand ourselves as related and just part of this web of life. Mm. We have to change our relationship to the natural world. And this is where native people and indigenous knowledge has so much power to affect that change. And that's part of indigenizing environmental justice is infusing environmental justice with this indigenous worldview, you know, this traditional ecological knowledge so that we can create these changes. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. You can now listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review wherever you listen.